Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Those of you who want to follow in your Bibles are welcome to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll read that in a moment. But what I want to talk about about <clears throat> this morning is a tension that lies at the heart of the Christian life. Attention that can either cause us to lose heart or take heart, <clears throat> depending on how we deal with it. And the only way we can deal with it that will cause us to take heart and not lose heart is if we deal with it by faith. As so many things in, um, in the Christian life, we have to deal with it um, by faith. So I'm just going to... Uh, this tension is is the following. It's, I mean, my children, God bless their poor souls, but they look a bit like me. Okay, <laughs> sometimes I feel sorry for them because sometimes they act like me as well. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a there's a family family resemblance between fathers and and, and children. Michelle just reminding me of something else that I <clears throat> need to just talk about. There's a, um, th- there's a new piece of legislation that the government is, is busy pushing through. Uh, I think it's called Papuda or something like that. Is that right? And um, it's, it's about the discrimination and, and so on. But the, the problem is it defines discrimination so widely and so generally and actually so inaccurately that it, it's a danger to freedom of speech and ultimately a danger to the Bible. Um, these kinds of legislation the world over have ultimately been used if they have been passed to outlaw the Bible or to outlaw certain preaching from the Bible. And, of course, we don't want that. We want to, of course, when, when freedom of religion goes in a country, it's just serious downhill from there on. Uh, we've seen that happen in so many countries. I mean, you talk about China, Russia, North Korea, all those countries. Um, wherever freedom of religion is suppressed, there really bad things happen. Okay? There's no more freedom of conscience. There's no more freedom of expression, etc. So we, we really need to stand strong and fight for this. So this coming Wednesday in small group, we're going to dedicate small group to praying for, for this, asking God to, to protect our religious freedom in South Africa. And we're also going to send you <coughs> excuse me, some um, templates of how you can respond. And I, I think every Christian should send in an email to the Department of Justice or whoever it is that's, um, that's sort of organizing this and proposing this legislation um, and, and say, listen, this is, this is wrong, this is dangerous, this is not good for our democracy, it's not good f- to, to sacrifice our religious freedom. Um, so I, I want to encourage you, I, I'm just going to pray for it now. Please put your faith with me and let's pray for it and let's trust God that we will not... Um, sacrifice our religious freedom in South Africa, uh, but 
also prepare your hearts and pray about it this week and, and come to small group ready to, to make your contribution. You might think it's just a small contribution, but every small contribution makes a difference. We cannot in 10 or 20 years' time complain when our religious freedoms are being suppressed uh, and stolen and our children can no longer worship the Lord openly if we don't act now. We need to act now to protect the future for our, for our children. So, Father, we just come and we just bring this new legislation that is being proposed, um, these amendments to you, Lord. And we, we know, Lord God, that in the form that it is now, Lord, it is dangerous. Lord, it will suppress freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, and religious freedom in a way that is very dangerous and that'll be bad for us as a country, Lord. And therefore, we bring the situation to you, and we ask for your grace and your mercy, and we ask, Lord, that you will help all of us as your children in South Africa to stand up, to take a stand against this, and to say, no, this is wrong. Lord, we, we, we also pray, Lord, that you'll mobilize your children to pray, Lord, against this. And we pray, Father, and we ask you, Lord, to protect our religious freedom so that we can serve you without fear and without persecution in this country, as we have been, and that we can worship you. Lord, we know there are so many of our brothers and sisters the world over that cannot worship you openly and with freedom, Lord, <clears throat> that get persecuted and even killed, Lord, when they worship you, Lord, or when they witness for you. But we can witness and worship openly, Lord, at this moment. We pray, Lord, that it will remain that way in South Africa, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I was saying that there's a tension at the heart of the Christian life. And that tension comes from the fact that children ought to have a family resemblance towards their fathers. And the tension is that sometimes we don't. Sometimes there's a bit of a resemblance, but there's, there doesn't seem to be enough of a family resemblance. So let's just read from 1 Timothy 1. I'm just going to read from verse 1 to 17. And, and <clears throat> what I'm going to preach is not going to be like a, a, a teaching, you know. I'm not going to go verse for verse through the text or anything. I'm just going to use that. It's sort of as a stepping stone and take certain ideas from it um, for my sermon. So Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, that's a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion, <clears throat> desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make, uh, about which they make confident assertions. Now we know, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, 
but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men uh, who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that I in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserve, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll teach it to our hearts in Jesus' name. So I just want to <clears throat> talk about three, three things from this uh, text. I want to just highlight the tension, the ever-growing tension that we experience as, as Christians. Uh, then the ever-growing trust that we need to respond to it and the ever-growing worship that, that, that flows from it. So, so Paul condemns sinners and contrast them with the just if you if you look at at verses eight and onwards he says the law is good if you use it lawfully and then he says understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless disobedient the ungodly and sinners and he uses all kinds of um synonyms there for the for the word sinner but but he but he, he's in a sense contrasting the sinners to the just so he's saying in a sense that, but then later on, here's, and here's, the, here's the tension, later on he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So on the one hand, he condemns sinners and in a sense separates himself from them, but then on the other hand he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. So what's going on here? Now, there's a lot going on here. I don't want to go in it, into it too deep, but, but one of the things is that um, the Bible does use the word sinner the title sinner, amartolos in the, in the Greek, in, in at least two different ways. One of the ways is a sinner was used to characterize, and this is especially true in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, where it talks about the tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were people who did not even try to line up their lives with the word of God and with the law of God, who, who intentionally just ignored the word of God and lived however they wanted to. Okay, So intentional sinners, we can call that. But this, the word sinner can also be used in a different way for all people because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of, of God. All of us are, in a sense, sinners because even after our conversion, even after we decide to put our trust in Jesus and line up, try and line up our lives with 
God's word in order to please God. Even though we have that desire to please God, our lives do not perfectly line up with God's word or perfectly please God. So in that sense, we're still sinners. Okay? <clears throat> and um, Paul here refers to himself as the foremost of sinners. And, and that's, that's a thing that creates a bit of difficulty for us. I mean, this is actually one of the last letters that Paul wrote. First and Second Timothy and, and Titus are, are three of the very last letters that he wrote. What, what was, are we to understand that Paul was becoming more sinful as he was becoming older? I mean, there are people like that. There are people who, as they become older, they don't, they're not like a good wine. They don't age well. <laughs> they, bec- they actually become worse, more grumpy, more sinful. They... they, they indulge more, they, they, they are more nasty to the people around them. So was Paul like that? Was he like a grumpy old man who was just becoming worse and worse? Is that why he says he's the foremost of sinners? Um, I, I, I don't think that's the situation, but I do think Paul was becoming more aware of his sin as he became more mature. In fact... I want to take it so far as to say that one of the signs that you are becoming more mature in the Lord is that you actually become more aware of your sin and more aware of how bad your sin is. You are less likely to dismiss your sin and make little of your sin. So if you can just bring up that, that first um, diagram, uh, next slide. Uh, you can go on. You know, as we start walking with Christ, in the beginning we have no concept of God's holiness or our sinfulness. But then as we, the only way we can respond to the cross, to the gospel and be saved, is we start realizing that God is holy and we are not. And start feeling that tension. So just go on. So we start getting a, a, a revelation of God's holiness at the cross. But if you are reading scripture... If you are paying attention, if you are worshipping God and getting to know God, then that revelation of God's holiness is an increasing revelation of God's holiness. It's an ever-growing revelation of God's holiness. But then along with that, you can go on to the next, we also get a revelation of our sinfulness. But if we're paying attention... to our own lives, to our own hearts, if we're paying attention to Scripture and God's perfect standards, and and if our revelation of God's holiness is, in fact, ever-growing, then our revelation of our sinfulness will also be ever-growing. And that means that there's an ever-growing tension between these two, God's holiness and our sinfulness that we feel, and that bothers us, that troubles us, that makes us feel uncomfortable and not so nice. And our natural response is, because these two things are pulling apart and creating that tension by increasing these two revelations, is to try and get one or both of these revelations to stop growing and, in fact, to get them to decrease. You see, let me first start by saying this, what, what is God's holiness and our sinfulness? God's holiness, holiness, the word holy means, hagios in the, in the Greek means to be separate from. And it, and it means to be separate from sin. 
God is holy in the sense that he's separate from sin. And, and sin, what is sin? What is our sinfulness? Sin means to miss the mark. Amartia, the, word, the Greek word for sin, means it's, it's, it's sort of like when you're shooting at a target and you miss the mark. And what, what is the mark? The mark is we're supposed to be like God. We're created in God's image. We're supposed to reflect God's glory. And that's why Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us, to some extent, fails to reflect God's glory. And thereby, we miss the mark that God aimed us at and shot us at. But I just want to go back to the definition of holiness. Because even though holiness is often defined as being separate from sin and sinners... The reality is that God was holy long before sin existed. Do you realize that? Before the devil and before we as human beings invented sin, God was already holy. So holiness has more to do with the nature of God and with our relationship to God than with our relationship to sin. Holiness is more than, it's, I'm not saying it's not being separate from sin, but I'm saying even more than being separate from sin, it's being separated unto God, separate to God. That, that's holiness. And these two things pull, and a growing revelation of these two things pull us uh, and create that tension that we feel. And, and the law, and these false teachers, you'll see, they, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand the law properly. And the law can help us create this tension by helping us to grow in our revelation of God's holiness and grow in our revelation of our sinfulness. So the law can help us create this tension, but the law cannot help us resolve this tension apart from the gospel. You see, when, when Paul talks about in, in um, <clears throat> verse 3, he says... These false teachers that he, that is commanding, that, that he says, Timothy, you need to command these guys to stop teaching because they're teaching nonsense. He, he says what they're teaching are different doctrines or a different doctrine. Um, the word heteros is used there like heterodox. You get orthodox, which is right teaching, and then you get heterodox. Um, they're teaching different doctrine, and that's contrasted in, in verse... Um, where is it? Verse 10, with sound doctrine. The word sound literally means healthy. Healthy or sound doctrine. And then he, Paul defines what, what the difference between the difference doctrine and the sound doctrine is. He says the sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. You know, it's sound doctrine lines up with the gospel. These false teachers were teaching the law, but they were teaching it in such a way that it doesn't line up with the gospel. Whereas Paul was teaching sound doctrine, which was in accordance with and which lined up with the gospel. And to me as a teacher, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a teacher, if you haven't noticed. But to me as a teacher, this is important to know. If I want to teach the law, if I want to teach the word of God, I can only teach it as sound doctrine, as sound teaching, if I teach it in a way that lines up with the gospel. So the, the gospel is, in a sense, the true north of all good and sound teaching. So trust in the gospel is the thing that helps us deal with this tension. Trust in the gospel. Um, so as Paul 
was was growing as Paul's revelation of God's holiness grew. His revelation of his sinfulness also grew in proportion. And the question is then, how does that happen? Well, it happens in this way. Um, as you move closer to the light, you see more of the dirt. Right? I remember once my kids were playing outside. I think it was specifically my sons. And they can sometimes be wild and roll in the grass and in the sand and in the dust. And their clothes were a bit dirty. But they came in and it was, the sun had already gone down. It was quite dark. So they're coming in um, out from outside, from out of the dark. Um, and our stoop light wasn't on. And, and as they were coming in, um, I was saying to them, listen, you, you guys need to go and jump in the shower or in the bath. No, 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 we're not dirty. We're not dirty. And I said, oh, yeah, just come a bit closer. Come into the light. And as they came into the light, there was just grass and sand and dust and dirt everywhere. But when they were staying, standing far enough away from the light in the darkness, they couldn't see the dirt. But as they came out of the darkness, closer to the light, the closer they became, they came to the light, the more of the dirt they could see. And they could see, oh, okay, <laughs> we actually do need to take a bath. And we're like that as well. I remember one um, pastor saying that he was driving around in the um, countryside. And he saw these sheep, again, you know, on these rolling green hills. And he thought, oh, how beautiful, you know, these pretty sheep. Look at how white and fluffy they are. They look like cotton wool, you know. And then they drove closer and there was a shepherd there, and the shepherd took them to go and see the sheep. And when they came close to the sheep, they saw the sheep were dirty. They were not white at all. They were like seriously off-white. And something can look clean from a distance, but as it comes closer, you can see the dirt more clearly. Likewise, when we are quite a distance from God, we're walking in the right direction, we're walking towards God, but... But as we come closer to him, as we become more mature and as we become closer to him, we actually see the dirt in our lives more clearly. And that aggravates this tension. So we become more aware of our sinfulness, even though, and then the question is, if as Paul was becoming more aware of God's holiness, the perfect standard, and his sinfulness... How he falls short of that standard. How can he maintain a pure heart and a good conscience that he talks about? How can he do that? Surely, if you become more aware of your sinfulness and, and God's holiness, you're not going to have a good conscience. You're going to have the opposite of a good conscience. That is true. And that is why so many people try and that tension between the God's holiness and our sinfulness to try and break it. So how liberal people usually try to break it, liberal churches will often do this, is they'll, they'll do it by denying God's holiness or minimizing God's holiness. Saying God's not as holy as the Bible says he is. His standards are not really that high. So they lower the standards so that they can feel better about themselves. That's what liberal people tend to do. What conservative people tend to do is they tend to minimize their own sinfulness. They tend to act right on the outside but not so right on the inside. And then they tend to judge other people around them because, I mean, if, if you feel like you need to resolve that tension and you're not resolving it by faith in the gospel, then you have to resolve it in some other way. 
then you have to say, but actually I'm not that sinful. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. Actually, you know, I'm better than other people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They were the conservatives of their day. And they said, listen, we're actually perfect. We're, we're not sinners. We're not like the Gentile sinners, and we're not like the tax collectors and the sinners. And we don't eat with them. And that's why we don't like this Jesus fellow, because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He associates with the ruffians and the bad people. And what they do is they minimize their own sinfulness. And Jesus says, you whitewash tombs. You clean yourself on the outside, but the inside is full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Full of sin. So neither of those options work. Minimizing God's holiness and minimizing our sinfulness, that's not a solution. So Paul talks about using the law lawfully, and the law can help us to recognize God's holiness and our sinfulness. But apart from the gospel, the law cannot help us deal with the tension between these two. Only the gospel, just three things, only the gospel allows us to understand God's holiness and sinfulness fully. Think about this for a moment. The gospel is the account of how Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a death in our place on the, on, the, on the cross, was buried, was resurrected, ascended to heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit. So, so you know, that's all part of the gospel. The gospel actually shows us, is the ultimate thing that shows us how holy God is. Because if God is so holy, if God is so will, uh, holy that he's willing to let his own son suffer and die on the cross for our sins, how unwilling is he then to overlook those sins? And that's God's perfect holiness, that he's unwilling to overlook any sins. Let, let me put it differently. God would rather suffer and die than to overlook sin. Can you see how the cross actually shows us how holy God is? I mean, you, if you contrast that to Allah in Islamic theology, there's, no one has to die in Islamic theology to pay for sin because Allah can just sweep sin under the rug. Allah, the God of the Quran, does not take sin as seriously as Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The cross shows us that. Okay? But the cross also reveals our sinfulness. If God required the life of his son as payment for our sin, how great is our sin? If he took the life of God's only begotten son to pay for our sin, how great was that sin? I mean, you know how big a debt is. If you're paying off someone's debt, you know how big the debt is by how much you have to pay to get rid of that debt. The more you have to pay, the bigger the debt was. Now, how much did God have to pay to get rid of our debt, our sin debt? The biggest ransom, the biggest price in the history of the universe, the life of his own son. Does that show you how big our debt is, our sin debt is? Our sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for it. That is how bad. Can you see how the cross shows us, how the gospel actually shows us? It's, it's the only thing that allows us to understand 
the greatness of God's holiness and the greatness of our sinfulness. The greater... Uh, the gospel enables us to, feel, to see the full extent of God's holiness and, and the full extent of our sinfulness. The gospel also allows us to admit God's holiness and our sinfulness. Without the cross to bridge the gap between, our, um, between these two things, our only solution is to either minimize God's holiness, or as liberals do, or minimize our sinfulness, as conservatives do. Look, if you feel, and, and every other religion is an attempt to do this, it takes the standard, God's holiness is the standard, and our sinfulness is the fact that we don't meet the standard. And every other religion in the world, without exception, every other religion except Christianity says, you must meet the standard. Here's the standard, now you must meet it. And if you feel you need to do that, and many people think of Christianity in that way as well. Many Pharisees did in Jesus' time and many um, Christians as well. They think, I must just live good enough to live up to that standard. Then you're going to have to minimize one of, one of those. In fact, when you are sinful, you won't be able to admit it because you feel that your salvation depends on you being good enough to meet the standard. And then you're going to become a hypocrite because you're going to have to pretend that you're good enough to meet God's perfect standard when actually you know full well that you're not. So, so it breeds hypocrisy. So the gospel, But when the gospel bridges the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness, it enables us to admit that we are more sinful than we'd like to be and God is more holy than we'd like him to be. So, um, only if we believe the gospel is true are we free to admit how holy God is and how sinful we are. So, only the gospel allows us to understand God's holiness and, sinful, and our sinfulness completely. Only the gospel allows us to admit God's holiness and our sinfulness. And only an ever-growing trust in the gospel allows us to bridge the gap between an ever-growing revelation of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Um, just put up the, the diagrams again and just go, go to, the, to the following diagrams. You see that, if that revelation and the gap between our revelation of God's holiness and our sinfulness is growing. Just go to the next slide. Then our revelation of the cross has to grow our revelation of the gospel has to grow in proportion. Go on. And keep growing in proportion. Go on. In order to bridge that gap. You see, we talk about living the gospel, right? The only way we treat this growing revelation of God's holiness and our sinfulness as a nuisance because it, it creates a tension which makes us feel bad. But actually it's a good thing if we have an ever-growing trust in the gospel. The only way we can truly live the gospel and more and more live the gospel and become the examples that Paul says Jesus has made of him is if we have an ever-growing revelation of the gospel and trust in the gospel. See, the, um, just go on to the next slide. I have a um, quote there from, from J.I. Packer that I just want us to read. Uh, J.R. Packer is a, is a famous theologian, and he says the following about repentance. He says, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin 
to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows in these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. That's quite powerful, eh? And quite profound. I'm going to read it again. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows in these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And it was the only way to grow in our family resemblance to our Father God, to become more and more like Him, is to continue to grow in our revelation of His holiness, in our revelation of our sinfulness, and in our revelation of the gospel that bridges the gap between those two. That enables us to repent more deeply of our sin. Because even though our sin is becoming less in an absolute turn, we're becoming more aware of it. And the little sins, we've maybe dealt with some of the big sins, but the little sins that didn't bother us in the beginning, all of a sudden are now coming onto our radar, and we're starting to deal with them as well and repent of them too, and becoming more holy and more like God all the time. So God used Paul's life and the tension in it as an example, he says, Paul says, to put the glory of the gospel on display. It says a few things there. It says that God showed him mercy. What is mercy? Because now we're talking about the gospel. What is mercy? Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. You know, in, in the stories when, when someone has been caught in a crime or something and is, you know, brought before the judge or before the king, he falls down on, on his knees and what does he shout? Have? Have mercy. In other words, don't give me the punishment I deserve. I know I'm guilty, but have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve. So mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. But then he says, but overflowing grace was given to him as well. What is grace? Grace goes beyond mercy in that grace... By grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. And here he specifically talks about the love and the faith. So even love and faith are part of God's grace that he gives to us. And as we have to grow in faith, we can only grow as God pours out overflowing grace on us because faith is part of God's grace given to us. Okay, but, but he gives us over and above. Not only does he not give us the punishment we deserve, but he gives us the blessing and the reward that we don't deserve, but that Jesus deserves. That's why it says the trustworthy saying is Christ came into the world to save sinners. How did he come into the world to save sinners? By taking their place. You see, Christ lived the perfect life that deserved God's blessing. We lived imperfect lives, lives that deserve God's punishment. But Christ, even though he lived a perfect life, he took God's punishment so that he received what we deserve so that we can receive what he deserved. Um, so grace and mercy. Um, even, um, I, I like that saying by Jonathan Edwards, you know, if, if even faith and love are part of God's grace given to us, then what do we contribute to our salvation? I like what Jonathan Edwards says. He says the, the, the Christian contributes nothing to his salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. And then it talks about God's perfect peace. 
Oh, sorry, God's perfect patience. That, that God's perfect patience might be displayed. So not only, what, what does that mean? That means that not only does God give us mercy, he doesn't give us what we do deserve, not only does he give us grace, he gives us what we don't deserve, but in his perfect patience he keeps on giving us grace and mercy over and over and over again, even though we don't deserve it as Christians. And that is what we see. We need to grow in our appreciation of that because that's the gospel. God's grace, God's mercy, God's continuous giving of it. He doesn't just give it once. He doesn't just give it twice. He doesn't just give it three times. He keeps giving it on and on and on and on throughout our lives. That is the grace of the gospel. And when we see that, our only response, and as, you know, when you, when you grow in your revelation of God's holiness, you realize how how disgusting and how insulting sin is to him. And how, how it... And, and then you start repenting, not only because the sin breaks God's law, but because it breaks God's heart. And, and, and as you grow in your revelation of God's holiness, you also grow in your revelation of your sinfulness because you realize that the standard is so much higher than you thought. So your sin is so much worse than you thought. But that also means that the forgiveness that you need is so much greater than you thought. And you become so much more thankful for that forgiveness. You see, if you make light of your sin, you also make light of your salvation. Anyone who minimizes their sin also minimizes their salvation. But if you don't minimize your sin, but you live with that tension and allow the gospel to breach that tension, then when you receive that forgiveness through the gospel, you're so much more grateful because you, you understand so much more how much you've been forgiven. And then the only thing you can do is break out in worship like Paul and say, to the God of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You can only break out in worship. So that increasing, that ever-increasing, that ever-growing tension leads to an ever-growing trust in the gospel, which leads to an ever-growing worship towards God. And that's why what I want to say this morning to us is, let's not short-circuit that tension between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Let's embrace that tension, and let's use the gospel to bridge it. Only then can we be true worshipers. You know, it's only the gospel that allows us to really, truly deeply repent of our sin and rejoice in our forgiveness. And we need to do both. We mustn't just repent. We must also rejoice. But we mustn't just rejoice. We must also repent. And only the gospel teaches a house to do both. To deeply repent and deeply rejoice. Because when, when you realize how what bigger problem your sin is, that it's bigger than you realized before, then when the gospel deals with that sin, you have a much greater revelation of how big that forgiveness is, how precious that forgiveness is. It causes you to be so much more thankful and so much more worshipful towards God. Let's stand.
if if you're here this morning, just, just close your eyes for a moment. If you're here this morning and you you realize that to some extent you've been short-circuiting or undermining that tension between a growing revelation of God's holiness and a growing revelation of your sinfulness because you failed to adequately and consistently apply the gospel as the bridge between those. I just want you to just bring your heart before the Lord and just, just repent and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've been trying to avoid that tension and avoid the discomfort that that tension brings by failing to apply the gospel to my heart. And I pray, Lord, I ask you to help me to consistently and deeply apply the gospel to my heart. Just in your own words, just just pray and bring your heart before the Lord. And then also notice that Paul approaches this whole issue out of the perspective of a teacher, not just how it impacted, impacts on him as the foremost or the chief of sinners, but how it impacts on his ministry to others. In other words, I want you to think, how does the, I mean, if we're not doing this, if we're not helping people to feel the tension between God's holiness and our sinfulness and then helping them to use the gospel to resolve that tension, we are not making disciples. We are not truly making disciples. So discipleship is doing this, helping other people to do this. Obviously, firstly, it requires that we do that. But then we need to help others to do that as well. To the extent, and remember what Paul says, the the charge of the command is love. To the extent that we love people, we will do this with them. Help them to continually grow, have an ever-increasing revelation of God's holiness and their sinfulness. In other words, an ever-increasing tension in their life. But they encourage them towards an ever-increasing faith in the gospel that will lead to ever-increasing worship towards God. You see, this also leads to greater humility, by the way. Because more and more you realize that this God's standard is higher than I realized and I'm missing it by further than I realized. So I have nothing to boast in. The only thing I have to boast in is what Christ has done for me. That Christ has loved me so much that He has met the standard for me which I could not meet by myself. It makes you humble. It makes you grateful. And it makes you less judgmental to the people that you minister to. Because then when you look at people and you see how sinful they are, you say to yourself, actually, I have no idea and they have no idea how sinful they are. But that's okay. That'll come with time. And the more they realize how sinful they are and how holy God is, the more they'll have to realize how powerful the gospel is. And as they do, the more they'll worship God for his goodness and his mercy and grace in their lives. So just, just close your eyes and just pray and say, God, use me as an example. As you used Paul as, as an example to put the gospel on display, use me as an example to put the gospel on display to other people. Yes, Father God, we just come and consecrate ourselves to you, Lord, and... 
and Lord, we tend to want to avoid the difficult tensions, but we, we just embrace it now, Lord, because we want to have an ever-increasing trust in the gospel. And we know that this is the only way to have it. And we pray, Lord, that you'll use us. Put your glorious gospel on display in our lives. So that when people look at us, they do not marvel at how good we are, but they marvel at how gracious you are for having saved us. We just honor you and worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just... I just feel I, I need to just hammer this one thing home. You know, so many people want healthy bodies. You know, slim, athletic, healthy bodies. But the only way you get that is by, by tension, <laughs> by exercising. And it's not always pleasant in the beginning. You know, that stretching that comes with exercises, stretching your, your muscles, pushing your muscles further than they think they can go, it feels uncomfortable. It even feels painful to, to some extent. And, and that's what, what we're doing when we're embracing that tension. It's a, it's a painful pushing of our spiritual muscles beyond what, we th- what they think they can handle. But that's the only way to grow. It's the only way to become stronger and more fit. So I want to encourage you, you know, if, if you want to become a Christian who has an ever-increasing trust in the gospel, you cannot have as one of your highest ideals a comfortable life. If you are a Christian, if you are a disciple, I mean, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. If you've become a disciple, you've departed from the path of least resistance. You've departed from the comfortable way. You embrace this tension. And the hardship, the difficulty that comes with it. Amen? Have you in your heart done that? If you haven't, just do that. Just say, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm done with trying to, to be comfortable all the time. I embrace the discomfort of discipleship. Lord, I just pray your blessing over your people. May the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord's face shine upon you and may he give you peace his peace in Jesus name Amen Amen, the Lord bless you as you go Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.